This is Salt and Spine. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks, and you're tuning in for a special episode today. We're recording in front of a live audience here at Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Hello, everybody. Wonderful. Um, Great to be here today and to be joined in front of this audience by today's guest, Kristen McGlory. Now, Kristen is the founding editor of Food 52, where she's been writing the Genius Recipes column for over a decade now, unearthing the best genius tips and tricks from chefs, cookbook authors, and home cooks. The column earned her a nod from the James Beard Foundation and has now evolved into a cookbook series. Uh, The first book, Genius Recipes, the second, Genius Desserts, which you can also hear on a previous episode of Salt and Spine. Um, And now we're here to talk about her latest cookbook, Simply Genius, uh, Recipes for Beginners, Busy Cooks, and Curious People. It brings together a hundred of the simplest and most genius recipes, and we're very excited to have you today. So hi, Kristen. Welcome back to Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It is an honor. Of course. So uh, we have had you on the show before, and we're thrilled to have you back today. And last time we chatted about the this piece in your bio that says you're always carrying a pastry, and you did in fact have a pastry the last time you joined us. So I'm curious, like, if you're packing a pastry oh today. Uh, you know, it's now that I'm a parent, that has sort of evolved a little bit to. <laughs> like a bag of almonds that has emptied into the bottom of my purse instead of like a fabulous pastry. It's like snacks at all times for both me and my daughter who's here. Sure. Uh, but often there is also, it's more like at home now, there's always a pastry, you know, from recipe testing. Like right now I have some extra brown buttery rice crispy treats made with popcorn mm. um, drawn from a few different genius recipes, inspiration, and um, some of Tara O'Brady's basic great chocolate chip cookies, which are in this book. Yes. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm glad you haven't entirely given up on <laughs> snacks and pastries and things on the go. I know as a parent, you definitely can't. Um, well, before we get to the book, just to refresh the memory, maybe folks have heard our previous interview. Um, and I've also been blessed to be a, a guest on your podcast, too. So I love the synergy we have. But um, let's talk a little bit about the genius recipe concept and column and what that is and how that's evolved before we get to the most recent cookbook. So you started this in 2011. Mm-hmm. And the idea was originally sort of really focused on cookbooks, right? And diving into cookbooks to pull out some of the the genius tricks and tips and hacks uh, that home cooks could emulate. Yeah. Yeah. Although honestly, most of them do tend to come from cookbooks, but some of them didn't. Some okay. came from, you know, an old, like a, a, a blog post from the early days of food blogging. Um, some came from even like an Instagram post. Um, some came from like a, a little zine or food magazine. So they could come from anywhere, but Really, I mean, where we get most of our recipes, as you can see looking around omnivore books, is, is cookbooks. Yes, of course. And how has the column evolved over time? I mean, we a decade now. So has that shifted like more towards home cooks? Has it kept that balance? Have you learned things about these genius tricks that we can sort of unearth that have formed or shaped the column in some way? I think in the very beginning, I was... I was thinking of it as I need to find the very best, most genius way to do X thing. And so I would sometimes sit down and research every possible ratatouille technique and then find four that I thought were interesting and test them all in a weekend and then pick my favorite one and, you know, kind of overanalyze what I thought was so great about it. But over time, since I've done this for over 11 years now, um, I've realized that, that there can be many genius ways to cook that thing depending on what your mood is and what your needs are at that time so 
a lot of things in this book. There may have been a previous version in the first Genius Recipes, for example, or even Genius Desserts, but there's a more streamlined version that just, you know, I'll, I will still make both recipes forever, but I'll make them in different moments when I have different needs. And obviously, like, as, as a parent of a young child, your needs shift a lot. So that's maybe the biggest change that's happened over the last 11 years is just really, really starting to understand the needs of people who need to get a meal on the table or get, you know, something ready for a bake sale or to give as a gift like right then and not have to do a lot of research and think about it. Yeah. I want to, uh, there's an example I want to talk about, about those uh, genius tips sort of building on each other mm -hmm. and different recipes and that evolution there. But we'll come back to that in a second because you touched on, you know, becoming a parent. I know you started working on this book like three, four years ago, mm -hmm. I think pre-pandemic, right? You originally mm -hmm. were putting the book together and then we had a pandemic. We've been through a pandemic. You became a parent. You moved cross country and you write about these things in the book as having sort of a big impact, as you alluded to, on mm -hmm. how how you cook. Can you talk a little bit about how specifically that has changed how you approach cooking as, as both a home cook, but also sort of a leading expert on home cooking? Um, I mean, I think before when it was just me and my husband, who's here today, um, <laughs> You know, we would eat dinner whenever, often very, very late or, you know, there just wasn't a timeline. I could just get lost in whatever I was doing in the kitchen, chopping, riffing. And I think maybe maybe searching for these recipes has given me an excuse to like really embrace my procrastination, my, my, my uh, tendencies towards procrastination and my tendencies towards like waiting until the last moment to decide what's for dinner or what's for dessert or whatever that thing is. Yes, you can have wonderful chocolate chip cookies if you um, make them 72, you know, make the dough 72 hours in advance. Right. Um, there's lots of benefits to that. But when you can find um, that recipe that someone very smartly designed to not need that, and you can realize, oh, I really want a cookie. And you can have that cookie in 30 minutes. Or, oh, I need, a, I need a gift for our neighbor, for our teacher, for a friend that I'm about to see and know that you can bust something out that quickly. Like, I, I've leaned into that so much. And finding these recipes has allowed me to do that in a way that, you know, 10, 11 years ago when I was starting the column didn't really matter as much because I had a lot more time on my hands. Sure. Yeah, I, I am a parent of two young children, and it mm -hmm. has dramatically changed the types of recipes that I'm looking for. And that practicality approach, I think, is not just for parents, but for, as you mentioned in the subtitle, you know, busy people, just mm -hmm. when you need those recipes, they're there for you. You talk a little bit in the book about um, the concept of joy, and that these are really recipes that have brought you and your family joy. Did your concept of what a joyful recipe is change? Like, do you no longer have the time to when, when you talk about a 72 hour cookie recipe, mm -hmm. does that no longer bring you joy or do you just have to like <laughs> adjust? It does. And I, I, I'm very proud of myself for having thought of it that far in advance, but uh -huh. I think, okay. I think that's yeah. part of it as parents um, and just as busy people with busy careers and busy lives. Um, it's, it's not, it's not having to use that part of your brain, like to think, okay, it's three days in advance. I need to get the dough. I need to like, you know, get the butter out of the fridge an hour before I start cooking all of that. It's kind of like, it's it's outsourcing a bit of your brain to the recipe that will do some of the work for you. But the sure. joy, like, I mean, the joy was critical during the pandemic, especially like and, and during early parenthood, like you don't have time, but you want to to feel good, to eat well, to feed your family well, to feed yourselves well. Like so when I would it just meant that much more, I guess, when I would stumble on something that 
we could bust out, you know, especially early in the pandemic when, you know, we had no childcare, we were both working right. two jobs and just kind of, she, our, our daughter was just barely one when, when like we went into lockdown. And, and so, you know, we were cooking three meals a day. And so to find those things that would then, you know, from our, you know, lockdown apartment in New York city at the time, um, yeah. make us feel like, something, you know, feel like we were like, we, we were having something that we could have been served at a restaurant was really, really meaningful. Yeah. You, you mentioned the recipes that sort of evolve and build. I think one of the most, uh, in terms of the genius recipes column and, and your body of work, um, one of the most interesting ones to me, or one of the clearest ones to me perhaps is the tomato sauce. Mm-hmm. So in, or I think early genius recipes days, um, Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce became a genius recipe, right? Mm-hmm. For, for good reason. It is an incredible recipe. And in the latest book, Simply Genius, you have a new tomato sauce that's mm-hmm. a, fif- am I getting it right? 15 minute tomato sauce? Five. Five minute. Okay. <laughs> I was way overdoing it. <laughs> Three times too long, right? <laughs> yes. I, those 10 minutes are super valuable. I'll tell you. Um, a five minute tomato sauce from, I think, from Heidi Swanson. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So can you talk about about how like both of those recipes you write in the book are both still genius recipes and mm-hmm. as you mentioned sort of serve a different purpose but I think that's such an interesting example of what you mean when you say that there can be different tips and tricks and there's not always run one right genius way to do something absolutely um and and honestly Marcella's recipe is also simply genius you know it's only really three main ingredients right. you're not even really chopping anything you're just slicing an onion in half and throwing tomatoes and that onion and the better part of a stick of butter into a pot to to cook for about 45 minutes. You do the better part because I just do the whole stick. (laughs) You do you. Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that is one of those that like, if you have the time, if you have 45 minutes or so to just kind of set something up on the stove, great. Um, If you want something that is very like sweet and and purely tomato flavored that you know the onion really sweetens the tomatoes and and the butter just kind of smooths out all the edges that is a wonderful recipe for those moments mm-hmm. but Heidi's is for different moments it's for when you have 5 minutes she literally cooks the sauce for 5 minutes but because she's thought about it and just like you know attacked it in a different way she um minces three garlic cloves uses a good amount of olive oil to carry the flavor of the garlic cloves and actually a good amount of red pepper flakes too although it's still good even without all, sure. if you need it something if you need something less spicy um and so she starts it in a cold pan so you know how many times in recipes have we been told to get the pan on the stove with the oil, wait till it shimmers, then add the onions or the garlic. And she uses the most of those five minutes by starting it in the cold pan. So the garlic is infusing the whole time it's heating up and she's stirring it as it goes too. So it's an active five minutes. So garlic and oil are tomatoes too. So garlic, Garlic oil, oil. chili flakes, and salt together, stirring Uh just until they start sizzling and you can smell them. Sure. But before the garlic browns. And then she adds in the crushed tomatoes and very specifically crushed tomatoes because they're basically already in sauce form. Sure. So, you know, if you had diced or whole, you could, you could, you know, take the extra step of blending them. But if you keep the crushed on hand, then really she just puts it in the pot with that garlicky spicy oil and as soon as it heats through it's done yeah so that's for those moments when you really just don't have any time um, or you know you want to just throw something together to th- throw on a pizza or a lasagna something that just needs to be kind of a quick you know part of a larger recipe 
Um, and the experience is much, much different. So if you're just in the mood for something that is really like savory and, and kind of feisty and spicy, that is going to give you that experience more than Marcella's will. So both should be in our arsenals, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, the book takes a little bit of a different approach in terms of its design and layout mm-hmm. <laughs> and the general user experience compared to the previous genius cookbooks, right? There's sort of handwritten style notes in the, the margins in some spots. There's, you know, little arrows that point to things. There's a lot of illustration, which I want to talk about. Um, how was that, a, I assume, a conscious decision to sort of shift the format a bit? And can you talk about that? Yeah, um, we, I don't know how many books we had done, but they basically had always, you know, at the point that we decided to kind of shift things over um, to a new design, but they had all pretty much looked the same. They'd followed the same template. So like Genius Recipes and Genius Desserts and all of the books in between had, you know, we had tried to make them have a very timeless, elegant feel, Mm -hmm. but then it was something like what... Okay, Genius Recipes came out in 2015, 2018. All right, we were just ready. We like it would have been a few years of of publishing in the same format. Uh-huh. And at the time, I was creative director of the whole brand of Food 52. Yeah. And um we were just doing a lot of fun experiments in the studio. We were doing a lot of infographics. We were finding new ways to to tell stories and and show techniques, and we wanted to bring that into a book, especially if we were aiming a book towards beginners. We didn't want to leave any questions, you know, what does chicken really look like when it's done? Um, All those kinds of things. We wanted to put those, uh, I don't think our photo team loved that decision because it's not fun to shoot uh, underdone chicken, (laughs) but it just felt like we could solve that in the design and it felt like so important, so useful. It's, I, I tried to keep all of those kinds of questions of what are the things I still wonder sometimes that I remember really wondering when I first started cooking and trying to fit them all into the design. So we did kind of start to like tear apart our old design and see what else we could fit in, which I don't, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if I can say I don't recommend, but it was really, really hard. <laughs> it was to really hard. From scratch yeah. And, yeah. Well, yeah. There, I mean, as I, I'm sure, you know, it, there are really good reasons why cookbooks are designed the way they are to be usable, you know? Um, and there are trade-offs when you start pulling those things apart. When um, And when you start to add in um, lots and lots of instructions and hand-holding, then you sometimes end up with a five-page recipe that is really, you know, it may answer every single question along the way, but it might be overwhelming to a new cook. Sure. Or, um, Especially if it's called Simply. Yes. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, and that came later, too. So uh-huh. like, you really got to <laughs> make sure it doesn't, like, it doesn't read as, as too complicated. Sure. Um, so sorry, did that answer uh, yeah, your yes. question? Oh, yeah, okay. totally. Yeah, I love that. And, yeah, like, shooting undercooked chicken is probably not a photographer's dream. Same with, I know there's a guide to cooking shrimp. Like, it's, <laughs> but it's super helpful. Like, that's, I mean, shrimp is, like, a split second mm-hmm. from being overdone. So, like, that visual guide, um, I think, is so helpful for home cooks. And we mentioned illustration. So, there is some there's obviously photography throughout the book and some of this um, photography in terms of doneness guides and things, but there's also a lot of illustration throughout mm-hmm. the book. Um, one of my favorites is you have a two page spread on where to put everything oh, yeah. in a home cook in a home cook's kitchen. Right. So like the salt needs to go in a bowl next to the stove. X needs to go here. Um, can you talk about some of those um, illustrations that you put together? Um, 
uh, like there's I, I have a few other examples that I love too, like handling hot chilies, for instance. So of course you can put gloves on, but you have this beautiful illustrated page on how to like cut the chilies so that you're not actually touching the spiciest part and and avoiding you know any sort of mishaps um, that might happen <laughs> later from that. So those illustrations and the 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 photography um, combination, I think, are really useful for home cooks. Did you know that was going to be the balance when you started the book, or? How did that sort of pan out? Yeah, we we really did want to, um, you know, try to answer every possible question in one way or another. And some of those, it was, we needed a photograph to show you like, okay, the rice is going to look like this before you move on to the next step, making this risotto. Um, so we wanted in some instances to capture uh, exactly when, you know, a, a doneness cue was going to happen or, you know, sure. or illustrate a key step. Some, some of the recipes in the book, like the no need focaccia from Sarah Jampel mm-hmm. or um, Chris Yen Bamrung's pad thai. Like it was, we thought it would be really helpful to have, you know, seven, eight photos of every key step of the recipe so that you could really visualize it happening. But then there were some other things that, you know, didn't feel like they needed to have the texture of the actual ingredients and were more of, um, and also it would maybe get kind of boring and repetitive to see eight pictures of the same chopped onion, maybe, you know, just kind of slowly advancing. So, um, the way that we did those illustrations was, um, actually very, very pandemic style. Um, I did all of the different tricks and tips in my kitchen. I had my husband, my brother and our nanny, whoever was available, take mm-hmm. pictures of me doing them on an iPhone. Okay. Um, and then, and they all had different styles of photography. <laughs> my brother took like thousands of pictures of every step. <laughs> and then, you know, my husband took like five. Um, uh, but they all, I mean, we had the most amazing illustrator, Eliana Rogers, who um, she took all of those piles of, of pictures of me doing things and turn them into these hand-drawn illustrations that are very clear. And I mean, drawing hands, I think, is, has got to be one of the hardest things. Yeah. And she made them look very clear and very, like my, my hands, just, you know, in this, in the, you know, late at night, terrible shadows in our kitchen, you know, <laughs> iPhone from all the different angles, from different people taking the pictures. And she made them all look very, very clear and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I love the illustrations. They're they're really beautiful. Um, you also have sort of at the end of the book a, a collection of different guides to how to do different things. So how to you know chop an onion, how to roast nuts, for instance. There's some illustration involved there. You even get to the point of like how to enjoy or love doing the dishes, yes. and like a, which I totally loved a guide to like how to find joy in doing the dishes. With I think it's like three or four steps to how to approach the dishes. Um, I love that you were thinking sort of holistically about the home cook experience, not just like how to chop something in this, in this technique way, but even how to like complete the meal and clean up. Um, is that something that you think about often in terms of like food 52, which is very home cook focused? Absolutely. I think, um, I, I really wanted to bring in all of those real life tips that I stumbled on along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, like, for example, in um, Priya Krishna's family, um, who, who wrote the cookbook, Indianish, yeah. she, her family has always made rice in the microwave um, and quinoa as well. Um, and it's it's a really great technique. You, basically, the same thing that happens steaming my, um, steaming rice in a pot, you just your microwave becomes the pot. You don't even cover it. It's just the whole microwave becomes this like steaming vessel, and it's sure. super quick. And 
I noticed that it's extremely easy to then wipe down your microwave, which no one likes to do and is kind of a pain in the butt. And yeah. um, so those are the kinds of tips that I was like, oh, this is so practical. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting this in. Or like um, Samantha Senevaratna's uh, oatmeal recipe in the book, I love because she makes it in a nonstick skillet. Yeah, I um, love and, that. You know, because making oatmeal sounds like a great idea, but then you leave the pot soaking in the sink all day. Right. And then you're cleaning it, you know, when you get home before you try to start doing dinner, like it's just so much easier if you can use the nonstick skillet and it cooks a little bit quicker. It's a little bit creamier. Yeah. So those kinds of, you know, real situations that we all encounter in our home cooking, I, I really wanted to try and get those into this book. That's the sort of um, thing, the sort of, I, I always use the word hack. I don't know if hack's the right word, but that's the sort of hack that um, I, I'm so intrigued by because I make a lot of oatmeal having two young children. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, like it's always a, a pan you have to deal with later and doing it in a nonstick skillet seems great but my my mind goes to like of course i'm gonna burn this like i'm mm -hmm. gonna char this this isn't gonna work i'm curious if there are tips and things like that that as you were putting this book together you had a similar response to right like oh i don't know if that's gonna work and then it, it sort of surprised you or, or you were mm. pleasantly surprised that it actually did work so well um no none of the no. hacks are immediately jumping to mind but okay. i mean i'm sure they're they're all like frittered away in my brain somewhere but the thing that is jumping to mind is um you know, so many of these recipes are um, excuses to not do something that we've been told to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so one example of that, you know, so I guess I'm thinking largely informed by my, you know, I went to culinary school. There was a lot of like French technique infused into a lot of what I was learning um, when I was learning how to cook. Sure. And so there, you know, it, I just really delight in finding recipes that that are like, no, it's okay. You don't have to scramble eggs for slowly stirring in a pan for 15 minutes or yeah. it's okay. You do not have to emulsify your salad dressing. Really? Like you don't have to worry about those kinds of things. And, but still, um, I never knew until I tried them. So like, um, one of my favorite recipes in the book is, um, Edna Lewis's salad of Grand Rapids lettuce. I'm going to mess up the name, but basically it's a salad. It's a green uh -huh. salad. Sure. Salad of Grand Rapids lettuce leaves and romaine, I believe okay. is the full name. Okay. Um, because she was making it with a, a type of lettuce called Grand Rapids. Okay. Um, in her cookbook, Taste of Country Cooking. Uh -huh. And there's no oil in the salad dressing. It's, and like, if you try to picture like, what does a vinaigrette taste like? That's a simple vinaigrette that doesn't have oil. And you think you picture it in your mind and you're just like, Ooh, that sounds like sure. aggressive <laughs> yeah. and tart and yeah. too much. And I don't want it on my lettuce, but sh then you try it and you know, she balanced it so perfectly with a little bit of sugar. She let it sit and mellow. Um, she added scallions. So that kind of okay. brings another like dimension and some sweetness too. And it, it totally works. It's not, it, you know, it's not harsh at all. Um, it's those three ingredients. Vinegar, yeah, sugar, it's vinegar, scallions. sugar, salt, salt, scallions, and then whatever, you know, crunchy lettuces sure. you have access to. Um, and the benefit to there is um, by not having oil in it, it can sit dressed for an hour mm. without wilting. It's the oil that makes salads collapse so fast. Fascinating. Yeah. But I never would have like been able to picture that without trying it. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned the scrambled eggs recipe because it's the first recipe in the book, actually. And it, it is one of those things that like you have to kind of, I don't know about unlearn, but it, to your point, goes against the things we've been taught and and touches on, I think, what you really try to do with 
everything genius in your your broader brand, which is, you know, something that changes how you approach cooking. Because I think about when I first learned how to scramble eggs slowly and over low heat, it dramatically changed how I thought about eggs, scrambled eggs in particular. And so then to think that you can have something that mirrors that in 15 seconds with this little addition of one ingredient, um, which is potato starch, right? Or it's cornstarch corn or tapioca or, tapioca, or okay. yeah, potato. Yes. Or potato. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a, a starch that you, you mix into the, the scrambled eggs before they go into the pan mm-hmm. and it, it's 15 15 seconds. I was going to say 15 minute again. I don't know why <laughs> my brain is on 15 minute. 15 second <laughs> scrambled eggs that are, are creamy and, and emulate the low and slow. Yeah. Yeah. The, the starch gets in the way of the proteins kind of quickly seizing up, which they like to do over high heat. Mm-hmm. And that's why typically if you want that like custardy scrambled egg, you would want to do it very slowly and not have the protein seize up and squeeze out their moisture and get you know dry and tough. But the cornstarch, um, as Mandy Lee discovered, accidentally, actually, she was trying to get something. She had a, a sick puppy, and she was trying to get um, the dog to eat something, and she added cornstarch uh. to her eggs. And then she uh. was like, oh, these actually look really good. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that she's really, like, f- fueled that. Um, you know, it's been years since she first published it, but it's it's gone on to change, I think, a lot of a lot of recipes out there. Totally. Um, a couple other recipes I just love to call out. I feel like I, I talk to so many cookbook authors and I open your books and I just like, I want to talk about every recipe because <laughs> they're this genius uh, recipe, right? So there's something so interesting about each of them. Um, but this cacio e pepe recipe mm-hmm. from Tony Kim, mm-hmm. which actually has no cheese in it. Mm-hmm. Um, cacio with the air quotes. Sure, cacio yeah. with air quotes, um, <laughs> which looks incredible and I can't wait to try it. But that was one that like, I had to wrap my head around again because I'm like cacio e pepe without cheese, mm-hmm. but it has miso, mm-hmm. which is what lends it that umami and mm-hmm. some of the creaminess, right? Can you talk about that recipe? Yeah, too? absolutely. I love that one. And I feel like cacio e pepe is another one of those recipes that you feel like, okay, this is going to be so hard. I got to get this right. It's only right. a few ingredients. You have to get the, just the right technique to land a creamy emulsion from, uh, you know, aged pecorino romano cheese. That's very dry and brittle, um, water and black pepper, basically. And yeah. that to form that into a creamy pasta sauce um, takes a lot of skill and technique and a lot of like last minute kind of acrobatics. And it's one of those things that I think can be very intimidating and has all this lore about it. Um, but yeah, Tony Kim's recipe with use by using miso and butter and chicken stock, although mm-hmm. I'm sure you could use vegetable stock sure. if you preferred, um, that just emulsifies effortlessly. It just, you know, it swirls together in the pan and makes a creamy sauce without stress. So yeah. of course, if you want to, you know, make a traditional cacio e pepe, great. Like it's well worth practicing, but if you want to just, you know, get dinner on the table and, and not stress about it too much. Yeah. This one and it does it's it's different it's 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 you know it's very pepper it has three kinds of pepper in it that's right it has szechuan too mm-hmm. and white pepper yeah celia yeah. it might not be for your wife i think it's three it's a lot it's right? three yeah. tablespoons yeah. Yeah. for one serving, it's one serving. <laughs> but it's really good if you if you like um, if you like pepper. if you like the, the pepe of yeah. it yeah uh-huh. um the the other one i just have to mention that blew my mind is this fried bacon, which is mm. not actually fri- fried in your version of it in the book, but it's 
it, maybe somebody has done this before and can like attest to it. And I know you have, but it's dipped in flour mm-hmm. and refrigerated overnight, right? And mm-hmm. then baked, and it creates this super crispy sort of fried, fried again, air quotes again, yeah, uh, bacon. <laughs> yeah. Um, That one comes from Joe's Bakery in Austin, Texas. And um, I first stumbled on it in the Austin cookbook by Paula Forbes. Mm -hmm. And it's called Joe's Famous Fried Bacon with Air Quotes. Because all of their customers at the bakery just assume that it's deep fried. Because it's got that like really crunchy exterior crust. Sure. And if you think about it, like my, my grandmother was from Oklahoma originally. And the way that she cooked basically every protein was dunking it in seasoned flour and then frying like shallow frying it in Wesson oil. But bacon does all of that by itself. It's got the seasoning already from the curing. Mm-hmm. It's got its own fat. So all you need is the flour to make that nice, um, you know, deep fried experience. Yeah. I love that. Anybody ever yeah. done that? Yeah. No? no. <laughs> I know. I, and we could spend the next three hours talking about every recipe in here and all these little tips and tricks. I would love to. Um, but obviously, you know, we're a show on cookbooks and um, we talked about some of your favorite authors and things several years ago. I can't believe it's been four years since you've been on the show. It feels like yesterday. Um, but I wanted to check in, not that your favorites have changed, but who you're who you're loving right now, or if there are cookbooks or cookbook authors that you're really excited about. Um, and folks who are familiar with Kristen's books too know that it's kind of like a who's who of all your favorite cookbook authors because you're drawing these genius recipes from so many cookbooks. So as the host of a cookbook podcast, I also just love to look through your books and be mm-hmm. like, I love that person. I love this person. I love that person. <laughs> um, so now we're going to pick your brain for even more people um, that you're excited about right now. Sure. Um, so in terms of modern authors. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the two that blew my mind this year were Ali Slagle's I Dream of Dinner, sure. who was recently a guest, actually right here, right here. at Omnivore Books. Live show, yes. Um, um, live. Go back and listen if you haven't. Yeah, because I mean, similar to the spirit of this book of just like being, trying to be really empathetic to what it takes to get dinner on the table or whatever meal that may be, but Ali's sure. very specifically focused on dinner and she, you know, she s- streamlines the heck out of her recipes, but makes them so delicious by just making really smart choices. Um, And just, I love watching how she thinks about how people move around the kitchen. And she even, I mean, she changed the way that the ingredient lists look to try and um, change the way that we think about cooking rather than trying to, you know, mise en place everything beforehand, because that's not how she learned to cook and not how she cooks now. Um, She, she changed the design of her recipe pages so that the ingredients, the measurements were within the instructions, um, which, you know, after working on, you know, kind of dissecting what this cookbook could be, I know how hard that is to, to make those changes. Yeah. Um, and we talked about the reaction that she got from a lot of people. A lot of people didn't like it. I, I love it. I love it too. But yeah, yeah it's, it was I, polarizing. I know once she, once she did that. Yeah. If, if, if people are used to a certain way, it, it is hard to change sure. minds, but it, that it makes it that much braver and more interesting. I sure. think. Yeah. Um, and then Eric Kim, of course, yeah. um, Korean American, um, it, you know, his recipes are very like thoughtful and doable in the same way that Ali's are, but he also weaves in a lot of, of personal memoir, a lot of beautiful photos, um, with, you know, featuring his family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a cookbook, both that's very cookable, but also one that's really wonderful to get lost in reading too. 
um, and like made me cry and may, and may make others cry. It's just, it's very beautifully written and, yeah. um, the recipes are delicious too. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. Um, you don't have to give anything away here. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you to tell us what you're working on next or, or any big secrets, but what do you, as a person who pays so much attention to cookbooks and has a long history working in cookbooks, do you, is there something you would like to see? that we don't have right now, Mm. like, especially coming out of this pandemic, your relationship to cooking has changed. Is there anything that you're like, I wish this exists, or I wish there was more of this in in the cookbook industry? Um, Similar to what I was just describing about um, Eric's and Allie's cookbooks. And this is a tall, tall order, but I really am inspired by people who are trying to do something different with books. because I, I understand how hard that is to do. And it's, it's really, um, I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's nice to see that, you know, with all the cookbooks out there with, uh, that there can be new ways to present information that can have us cooking or thinking in a different way. Sure. So I, um, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with just using a traditional format and like, you know, putting out really, really great recipes. That's always a good thing too. But Um, I get really excited when I see something completely new. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we always end our show with a little game. So um, we have our cards here. I'll slide them a little closer to you. Um, And beautiful. I can't take credit for making them, um, but we have four little decks of cards here. So we have our secret ingredients, which are um, just kind of sometimes random or obscure ingredients. Maybe I'll pass them so they're closer mm-hmm. to you so you okay. can draw from them. Um, the secret ingredient one them. feels very threatening. Okay, well, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's come back to that one. <laughs> let's uh, start. So we have four decks. You can draw from all four. And okay. I thought we'd play a little like genius slant, a genius slash chopped game, right? Okay. So that's what you have to work with. Assume you sort of have a standard pantry available to you mm-hmm. as well. And tell us what you might make. And if there is like a little genius tip or or trick or hack for a home cook that you can throw into, great. If, okay. if not, that's okay too. Um, so protein okay. first, which okay. is um, proteins, obviously. And see how beautiful these are? Yeah. Ham. Ham. Okay, so we have ham. Um, let's do a vegetable next. Sweet potatoes. Ooh, okay. okay, ham and sweet potatoes. Flavors, which are like herbs, spices. Basil. Basil. Okay, interesting. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that sounded. And here's where here's where it could really swerve too with a secret ingredient. Okay, let's see what you get. Dragon fruit. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Ooh. So we have ham, sweet potato, dragon fruit, and basil. Okay. What well, might we make? okay. This is almost too easy on the first three because there are two recipes in the book that I would love to describe. I'm trying to picture how they would go together. I think it'd be fine. I think they'd be delicious. Okay. Um, so the only way that I can really think about making sweet potatoes anymore is Nick Sharma's technique for yeah. baking them. Um, you know, when you roast sweet potatoes uh, in the oven, sometimes they just come out really leathery and like stringy. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a technique where he cuts them in half, slathers them in a little butter, cooks them face down, and then flips them face up at some point. And what he's doing is like capturing the steam from the butter and from the sweet potato itself sure. to break down those fibers. So they end up getting 
really creamy and not stringy, uh-huh. but then you get the benefits of roasting. So you get something like 17 extra flavor molecules that come out. This is from his book, Flavor Equation, and it's also in this book. Yeah. Um, because if any of you have, uh, you know, tried to feed small children, steamed sweet potatoes are pretty, pretty bland and boring. Um, so just steaming alone softens them, but doesn't bring out a lot of flavor. Just roasting alone doesn't do great things for the texture, but kind of combining those in the same technique sure. um, is my favorite way to roast sweet potatoes. Okay. Um, the ham and the basil, I'm sorry, I'm like, the poor dragon fruit is going like, <laughs> <laughs> <so, laughs> yeah. to be an afterthought, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, beautiful, a beautiful centerpiece that you then can break into for dessert. Um, so the ham and the basil, there's a recipe that I love in this book so much um, from Leah Chase, um, from Dookie Chase's sure. restaurant in New Orleans. Um, it is for a, it's leftover rice pancakes. So um, just like, you know, basically... You take leftover rice, and instead of turning it into fried rice or something, you can put it in a quick batter and uh-huh. make these savory pancakes. She tops it with a ham and tomato basil sauce. And so, um, you know, just kind of like cooks that, I believe, in some butter. It was a little garlic salt in, so it's super savory. Okay. Um, yeah. And I the, the thing that I really zeroed in on about that recipe is that she says, you know, something, something, chopped tomatoes, seeds included. Like emphatically, don't get rid of those seeds, right. which I loved because going back to my culinary school education, they taught me the concasse, which if you're if you're not familiar with it, is like boiling tomatoes, peeling their skins, getting rid of all of their seeds and juice, and then just being left with like the, the meat of the tomato, right. basically. And I never, I mean, I understand that that's from a cuisine of a particular era, and sure. I understand why we learned it, but I kind of was like, why aren't we learning anything else? Like, why aren't we learning that you can eat tomato seeds? And they add texture and yeah. a lot of flavor um, that you're just throwing away when you core a tomato. Yeah, and certainly there are recipes where you maybe you don't you don't necessarily want a lot of extra juice, um, but I love that this recipe very emphatically embraces it. So sure. it's just saucy and has all the textures of peels and seeds and everything mixed in there with the ham with the basil. Um, poured over these leftover rice pancakes, but in this case, I would pour it over those sweet potatoes. Okay. Okay. And I think that would be pretty delicious. That would be delicious, right? Yeah. Kind uh-huh. of like a summer fall transitional. Sure. Um, and then the dragon fruit, I would <laughs> eat for dessert. Eat for dessert. <laughs> is that is that allowed? <laughs> yeah, you can do whatever you want. Uh, let's let's close out with one more round, and we'll see if you get okay. an easier or a harder one. It okay, can, it can really go either way. Sometimes people get really stumped. Uh, let's do vegetable first. And we're not trying okay. to stump you. We're just having fun. <laughs> broccoli. Okay, broccoli. Flavor. Red pepper flakes. Okay. Protein. Tuna. All right, and a secret ingredient. Pumpkin. Okay. Pumpkin, broccoli, tuna, and red pepper flakes. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, the drawing at least is a, a whole pumpkin, not like a can of pumpkin too. So I'm going to go sure. with that. You're going to go whole pumpkin. I'm going to okay. go whole pumpkin. Okay. Okay, so I loved, speaking of genius, um, things you don't have to do, <laughs> um, I love that in all of Yotam Odalenghi's books, he had basically, I think, all but one, and I think that was maybe dessert-focused, 
all of them have a, a squash recipe, usually butternut squash, yeah. um, where he does not peel the squash, yeah. um, which is like, you know, anything that you have to do with butternut squash is a bit of a battle. You sure. know, it's, you're wrestling this thing and it's rolling all over your, your cutting board. Um, so if you don't have to peel it and you only have to chop it, then you're taking away like half the danger. Yeah. Um, and he has a, a way of roasting it that, um, you, if you put it skin side down on the hot pan, it gets really like crispy and chewy as opposed to like, if you didn't do that, it would maybe be a little bit more leathery and that's the reason okay. you'd want to peel it. Right. So he makes it a, a, a good part of the texture. Um, so I would definitely do that with the pumpkin, okay. not peel it, maybe cut it in wedges or, hmm, um, there's another, uh, if you just don't want to deal at all, you can just roast it whole. Um, okay. that's what Minnesota yeah. does. That's right. also in, um, in Simply Genius, I included that. Um, because yeah, sometimes you don't, I mean, I know some people will just like throw it on the ground because they don't want to, don't want to chop it and just sure. like roast it in those pieces, but you sure. can roast it completely whole if you roast just whole. Okay. stick it in the yeah. oven. Uh -huh. And in that case you would want to then, Do you seed it? uh, yeah, it's yeah. much easier to, it to, yeah. Once it's out of the oven, you can cut it in half, scoop out the seeds, and scoop oh, out the flesh. Oh, you seed it after roasting. So yeah. you literally just throw it in, roast it, and then yep. seed it after it's roasted. Okay, mm -hmm. And then you have the, the puree that you can use for whatever right. you want. Right. Um, you know, a soup, a mash, a gnocchi, say. Yeah. A, a pumpkin bread. Pumpkin, yeah. Okay. Now, but we got to get these broccoli and tuna and red pepper flakes in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the tuna, I don't know. Let, let's see what you do. I mean, I've... Now that I'm saying gnocchi, okay, this is not something I would actually do because this sounds like a lot more fussy, but it's I'm like, conceptual, so <laughs> yeah, it might, you don't my, have to do anything. In my imagination, maybe <laughs> yeah. I am making a pumpkin gnocchi. Okay. Okay. And, um, and then, then it's just a matter of like crisping up the broccoli. You could either like do a hard sear in like a cast iron pan to get it really crispy on one side, sure. or you could roast it, whichever you wanted to do. And then just at the last moment, stir through, I'm assuming that we're talking like, preserved tuna like you know in oil or something it's like a, that i think it's open-ended so okay. we can go that direction yeah we're gonna go with that in the sauce and the red pepper flakes and it, i mean that just all the flavors kind of make themselves i'm not really sure what the sweet potato is going to do there but i feel like it can't be it can't be bad or the pumpkin oh yeah sorry sorry the pumpkin, the pumpkin. i'm not sure okay. what the pumpkin is going to do yeah. there in terms of tilting those flavors away from like you know spicy roasty yeah um, but then what, what could tie those together? I mean, just, you know, a little bit of acid, I think, would help. Yeah. A little, little lemon juice. So. That's sure. my solution to everything. Yeah. Would you eat that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I always say, sometimes when we think we need salt, we need acid. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. And worst case scenario, it's October. You just carve the pumpkin. Put a, put a candle in it and put it on your front porch, right? Yes. Right. Another centerpiece. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. It's a gourd. Well, thank you for playing along of with course. the game. Thank and you. thank you so much for coming back. This is all inspiring, Kristen. And thank all of you for being our audience today. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to this special live recording of Salt and Spine from Omnivore Books in San Francisco. As a reminder, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And we also love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. 
Today's episode was, of course, recorded in front of a live audience at Omnicore Books in San Francisco. Salt and Spine also records at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen now offers both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Celia Sack and her team at Omnivore Books, to Edible San Francisco, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.